Welcome to the Indisposable Podcast, produced by Upstream. I'm your host, Brooking Gatewood. Thanks for joining for another episode celebrating solutions to plastic pollution. 40 years of data on deposit return system laws, or bottle bills in the U.S., demonstrate that these programs effectively boost collection and recycling rates, create opportunities and jobs in local economies, prevent roadside litter and plastic pollution, and catalyze reuse. So what is the importance of reuse in deposit return systems, or DRS, and how can DRS policies incorporate the latest thinking on reuse solutions, funding, and incentives? This episode, a recast of our latest installation of Indisposable Live, digs into these key topics as well as recent policy wins in the U.S. Hosted by Upstream CEO Crystal Dreisbach and featuring Susan Collins, president of the Container Recycling Institute, Sarah Nichols, sustainable Maine director at the Natural Resources Council of Maine, and Peter Spendelow, natural resource specialist at the Oregon Department of Environmental Quality, This conversation showcases the distinct ways that California, Oregon, and Maine have begun to incorporate reuse and refill into their bottle bills. So without further ado, let's jump into Indisposable Live, how U.S. bottle bills are accelerating reuse. Hello, and welcome to our latest installation of Indisposable Live. I'm Crystal Dreisbach, Upstream's new CEO and Chief Solutioneer, and I'm delighted to welcome you all today to the event. For those of you who aren't familiar with us, Upstream is a nonprofit organization that sparks innovative solutions pollution by helping people, businesses, and communities shift from single use to reuse. We seek to live in a world where people and the planet are treated as indisposable and all communities thrive without all the waste. I'm so excited to be hosting today's conversation about reuse in deposit return systems. In just a few minutes, I'll be joined by our panelists today, three amazing humans who are working on incorporating reuse and refill into their state's bottle bills. As you'll see in the chat, please feel free to submit any questions you have using the Q&A feature at any time throughout this live stream. We'll be monitoring and synthesizing questions to raise for our panelists at the end. This is going to be a really meaty conversation. So if you're feeling inspired and want to connect with folks after the program, we'll be hosting an optional 30-minute speed networking session on another line, and everyone will be welcome to attend. We'll drop the link in the chat at the end of this live stream. So to kick things off, I thought it might be helpful to provide just a little more background on what we'll be talking about today. So 50 years of data on deposit return systems or DRS laws in the US demonstrate that these systems are very effective at boosting collection and recycling rates, creating local economic opportunities and jobs, generating clean streams of recyclable materials through source separation, preventing litter and catalyzing reuse. At Upstream, we believe it's high time for a national bottle bill a term which I'm going to use interchangeably with DRS, so bottle bill DRS. And we've been working hard behind the scenes to help develop a modern national bottle bill that incorporates reuse. The beverage sector is ready for reuse at a national scale. Today, more beverage reuse systems operate at scale than all other open reuse systems, such as reuse for gallop 
and delivery or bulk sales of dry goods. And virtually all of those use a DRS to get their container back. In every successful reusable beverage container initiative around the world, DRS is either mandated by law or established voluntarily by the beverage industry. In fact, DRS started as a result. The original DRS systems for beverages were created by beer, soda, and dairy companies to get their bottles back for washing and reusing. They built distributions and wash hubs, and those allowed virtually any commercial beverage uh, company in the U.S. to be sell, to sell their products in reusable bottles, refillable bottles. Unfortunately, we then allowed this infrastructure to be dismantled across the U.S., and we're only just beginning to create the right conditions for it to be rebuilt. Today, there's a wave of momentum to modernize the country's 10 existing bottle bills, all of which were enacted between 1971 and 1986. That include incorporating reuse. And now we have a number of ways we'd like to see reuse incorporated into a bottle bill, ideally. And I'm gonna run through those very briefly. First, we wanna require producers to invest in reuse infrastructure and incorporate financial incentives for those producers to want to transition to reusables. And next, we need to set reuse targets in statute or regulations or require producers to propose reuse targets through a stewardship plan and get them approved by the state. Third, it's important to clearly define what reusable packaging means as part of an organized system where the containers are used in their original form for their original purpose. It's also important to center justice and equity by ensuring community engagement in all of this program implementation, prioritizing the prevention and mitigation of environmental and health impacts from waste management, disposal, and litter in these frontline communities, and ensuring that everyone has equitable access to reuse and recycling. Finally, we wanna minimize barriers to the growing reuse sector. To do this, we wanna encourage competition, correct outdated and conflicting policies like outdated health codes, and avoid overly burdensome reporting and other administrative requirements uh, imposed on reuse operators. So today we're seeing some of these principles begin to be adopted into state uh, bottle bills, which are now updated. And I'm thrilled to welcome three guests we're going to showcase for us the different ways that reuse is being incorporated into the beverage container DRS in each of their states. So, Sarah, Susan, Peter, uh, please join me on camera. We're going to hear from each of our panelists. They're each going to briefly explain how the bottle bill works in their state and describe how reuse and refill has historically fit in provide an example of how their state's DRS is currently enabling reuse and refill, and then talk about any updates from the last one or two years on rele relevant legislature. Uh, so for, we're going to hear from Sarah Nichols. Sarah is the Assembly Maine Director at the Natural Resources Council of Maine. Welcome, Sarah. Thank you and good morning and good afternoon, everybody. Um, my name is Sarah Nichols and I'm so excited to join you today. Um, I'm a really big fan of Upstream um, and I'm convinced that the future of packaging is reusable and I'm excited to focus on getting large scale adoption throughout the country with you all. 
Um, so Maine's uh, deposit return system, our bottle bill began 45 years ago, um, just five years older than me. Um, I grew up here in Maine and until recently, um, I didn't quite realize how much packaging in Maine was from beverage containers. It's about half. Um, so I really shudder to think about how overwhelmed our municipalities would be if all those containers were going through the municipal taxpayer funded system um, and how much more litter we'd have. Um, it really is a way of life here and it's not going anywhere um, in our state. Um, so Maine's program is really the most comprehensive in the country as far as the types of containers that are included. Um, all but milk and Maine produced uh, blueberry and apple juice, of course. You can see what lobbyists were present um, when that was passed. Um, and we even just recently added the tiny nips uh, liquor containers um, several years ago. And we have a, a deposit of five cents for everything except for liquor and wine are 15 cents. Um, so this program is also our state's most successful recycling program, collecting about 75% uh, of the best data we have of the containers for recycling. Um, and we all know that the material collected through the program is a higher quality commodity that actually has a chance of getting turned into a new container. Uh, so this means that it also complements our state's new minimum recycled content law for plastic beverage containers that'll go into effect in a couple of years. So his, historically, the program has not fostered that much reuse and refill, um, but that's about to change. Um, and I think it's interesting that the most prolific reuse and refill operation in Maine um, is from Smiling Hill Farms Milk, um, which is, of course, exempt from the program. However, many of the redemption centers in Maine help to facilitate the return of glass milk containers um, back to them to be refilled. And I think generally they have an agreement with the retailer where they sell their, their milk. So... All that said, while our program has been um, a huge recycling, litter reduction, and taxpayer savings success, um, it had been starting to show its age recently. It was a bit uh, clunky and um, kind of falling apart. Um, so we just went through a very intense but successful legislative process here in Maine to modernize the program. Um, I'll describe the major changes uh, briefly to you, but focus mostly on the reuse and refill provisions that I know everybody would like to hear the most about. Um, the big change are um, <clears throat> that we raise the handling fee paid to redemption centers by beverage manufacturers. That's how our program is funded here. Um, we raised it from four and a half cents per container to six. Um, that's already happened and it's prevented many of our redemption centers from going into business. Um, the, the biggest thing though that we did is we significantly reduced the sorts needed at redemption centers to streamline the program. So no more tedious brand level sorting means um, it'll just instead go to material type and size and maybe by deposit amount. So it'll reduce sorts from 600 plus in some cases, uh, maybe to around 30. So it's a really big, um, great change. It's something that everybody could really agree was a problem that needed fixing. So in order to be able to do that, um, to sort by material type at redemption centers, we had to create a new commingling cooperative. So um, it's kind of like a producer responsibility organization in a way. Um, and their their function is to share all data and costs with each other um, so that we can make the, the reduced sorts happen and do a lot of other cool things, such as provide us with uh, third-party verified redemption rate data, which is really exciting um, for us bottle bill geeks, um, and facilitate more reuse and refill that I'll talk more about. Um, another big change is that instead of allowing the majority of the uh, beverage industry to keep the unclaimed deposits free and clear, um, they will now be the property of the commingling cooperative and the funds will be kept separately and only allowed to be spent on things that support the, the program. 
However, um, the bottlers could keep the unclaimed deposits on refillables. Um, so that's one way um, that we'd uh, be incentivizing that. Um, that leads me to describe to you more um, how the law will facilitate more reuse and refill. Um, so in addition to keeping the unclaimed deposits on reusable containers, the cooperative's plan um, has to include a description of how it will support the development of infrastructure throughout the state for the collection and sanitation of refillable containers. Um, and they have to describe the education methods used to educate businesses, consumers, um, and others on the value and safety of refillable beverage containers. And there must be a third-party assessment of the effectiveness of those efforts. Um, the state will have a new cost and carbon efficient technology fund that will receive $1 million a year from the unclaimed deposits from the non-refillable containers held by the cooperative. And that money will be used to support activities designed to increase the use of reusable and refillable containers, including any materials and supplies needed for pilot projects to determine financially viable washing techniques, um, any work done relating to container adhesive and label options that can be used between manufacturers, um, the outreach and education activities for manufacturers, retailers, restaurants, et cetera, um, regarding safety and financial and environmental benefits. Um, and money will also be available to help redemption centers with any technology needs they have. So I'm almost done here. So um, the state also has to contract with a third party um, regarding the feasibility of achieving goals of 5% and then 10% of all containers marketed in the state being refillable and determine the infrastructure and investment needed to support those goals. And that report will become available by February 15th, 2027. So that's our program in a nutshell. I look forward to answering questions. Um, but I do wanna say that throughout the process of advocating for the reuse provisions in our um, new modernized program, it really became clear to me that we need a lot more education on reuse and refill in general. Um, you know, the safety, how it's used elsewhere successfully and how it's really the way of the past that needs to come back. Um, and I just wanna give another shout out to Upstream. Um, Sydney Harris uh, had helped me provide easily digestible content to the decision makers on that. And it really helped immensely with their skepticism and actually got it, got it into the bill. So I look forward to the discussion and thanks again for inviting me to join you today. Wow, thank you, Sarah. This is great stuff. Lots of experience that you have and a lot of inspiration coming out of Maine for all of us. Um, next, we have Susan Collins, who's the president of the Container Recycling Institute. Welcome, Susan. Thank you, Crystal, and, and thank you to Upstream for hosting this event. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, uh, I am the president of the Container Recycling Institute, which is located in California, and so I'm going to be talking um, about how the bottle bill works in California and some other details. So um, I'm going to um, share my screen. I have a couple of slides here. And it'll just take me a second to start from the beginning. There we go. So in California, California's bottle bill is officially known as the California Beverage Container Recycling and Litter Reduction Act. This bill was enacted in 1986, but has been revised dozens of times over the years. The California program uses the term California Redemption Value or CRV. It's our, you know, our own little uh, copyrighted <laughs> name sort of thing. Um, as the name of the deposit and refund. 
The container types in the program are aluminum, glass, plastic, and bimetal containers. When I say bimetal, it's like um, V8 juice containers, or there's some other containers like that that are actually steel. They look like aluminum, but they're steel. Deposit and refund values are five cents for the smaller containers, those that are less than 24 ounces, and 10 cents for the larger containers of 24 ounces or more. So coming up in January of 2024, wine and spirits will be added to California's program. There's also a twist. Cartons and pouches will be added to the program, but only if they contain wine and spirits, and they will have a higher deposit refund value of 25 cents. So there are a couple of features of California's program that are very different from most other programs in the United States. The first is that the program is administered by a state agency called CalRecycle, rather than being producer-operated. The second difference is that the vast majority of containers are redeemed through redemption centers, with only a tiny fraction of containers redeemed through retail take-back. So now I'll talk about the history of refillables in California's law. Before the introduction of disposable containers, soft drinks, milk, beer were sold in refillable glass bottles. The decline of refillables began mid-century with the introduction of single-use one-way packaging. The steel can was introduced in 1935, then the aluminum can in 1959, and finally the PET plastic bottle in 1973. By the time California's bottle bill was passed in 1986, Refillable bottles were just a small fraction of the beverage market. However, California's original bottle bill did carve out an exclusion for refillable bottles so that those containers could be returned in their traditional way and so that deposit values for refillables could be established by the bottlers. Therefore, refillables have not required the CRV deposit. They have their own. A few years ago, there was renewed interest in refillables, especially led by a startup called Conscious Container, a B corporation that seeks to operate a redemption and washing system for refillable beverage containers. Conscious Container couldn't participate in the California CRV system because the law mandated that all returned bottles be crushed for recycling. In 2021, the passage of AB 962 removed that barrier and changed the law to allow washing and refilling of containers that are redeemed as part of the CRV system. Another change was made to one of CalRecycle's grant programs to allow refillables to be eligible for grant funding, and Conscious Container received a grant to purchase washing equipment, which is the key to any refillables program. Next, I'll give a new example of how California's program is currently enabling reuse. In 2022, California lawmakers provided funding for refillable beverage containers with the passage of AB 179. And the next sentence I'm going to say is huge, and I'm just really thrilled that this happened. We lobbied for this for a long time. The legislation appropriates $25 million, which is available to, quote, award grants, loans, payments, or contracts to support a DRS system for reusables. That's all we know about this grant. There are no other criteria that were listed in the legislation. The funding is expected to potentially change the current system to incorporate refillables into California's DRS system instead of having a disconnected refillable system and a separate system for all of the single-use beverage containers. So, Legislative updates that we've seen in the last one to two years include 
The most recent change came just this month with the potential passage of SB 353. It was voted through by the legislature, and if it is signed by the governor, it will expand beverage types to include 100% fruit juices and vegetable juices, closing a loophole. It will also make an important technical change to provide desperately needed increases in the payments to redemption centers. Aside from SB 353 that I just talked about and AB 179, which was the budget bill with the $25 million, there are a handful of other legislative updates that we would like to highlight. Two years ago, another technical change was included in AB 962. Now, reusable glass beverage containers will be eligible for the same program payments as other glass containers. So that will help with the funding for that, pro- for that type of program. More recently, SB 1013 was signed into law last September. As I mentioned, SB 1013 expands the California Bottle Bill to include wine and spirits, but it makes many other program improvements. It provides grants to glass cullet processing applicants, funds more regional programs to provide bins and collect empty beverage containers. It incentivizes glass beverage container manufacturers to purchase recycled glass to use for new containers, and too many other changes to mention here. There are various implementation dates for the different parts of the 60-page law, so we'll continue to see the effects of SB 1013 unfold over the next few years. Lastly, I'll mention a bill that may be the only one in the nation to require water bottle filling stations in public schools. In 2022, AB 2638 required a minimum of one water bottle filling station in schools undergoing modernization efforts and required a minimum of one water bottle filling station per 350 people at a school being newly constructed. This went into effect in February of this year. And in closing, I should also mention that we have a refillables fact sheet up on our website on container-recycling.org. And I I know that's going to be a popular fact sheet for a lot of the people on this webinar to read. Thank you. Susan, thank you very much. And by the way, your slides are uh, beautiful and clear and really helpful too. Um, Finally, we have. Peter Spendelow, who is a natural resource specialist at Oregon Department of Environmental Quality. So we're very lucky to have him, and he oversees Oregon's bottle bill program. Welcome, Peter. Uh, Just to be clear, um, it's actually our Liquor and Cannabis Commission, which administers our law, rather than my agency, which is Department of Environmental Quality. And that's actually a really good thing because they have, um, you know, responsibility over all of these um, liquor, you know, all the beer sales. And so if a if a store is not following our law, they will simply pull the liquor license from that store. And no store wants to have a liquor license uh, pulled. So that's why we have really high compliance among our grocery stores for, for taking back containers. So let me um, share my screen here. And uh, hopefully I can find the right one. Here we go. I think it's this one here. Okay, can you can you see my screen? Okay. Oh, I assume we can. So, um, very quickly, Oregon. Our law is fifty-two years old. Um, it's. Uh, I wasn't around here when it first passed, although I certainly was aware of that. But um, you know, when it passed in nineteen seventy-one, and it's. Uh, 
it really was a producer responsibility law way back. It, but it was done differently from our current laws in that there was no producer responsibility organization. Each of the producers, which would be the beverage distributors and the stores, were responsible for taking back the empty containers and redeeming them. Um, and so it only covered beer and soft drink back then. We had a five cent refund value, which was unchanged for 46 years. It's now 10 cents. Um, we have never had a handling fee in Oregon. And so uh, there's no reason for having an independent redemption center because you wouldn't make any money. You bring back containers, you pay out deposits, and you know you get deposits uh, from your distributor, but you you know you wouldn't have any profit in there. So, um, but refillables actually made it possible for this law to pass. I think um, because back then. Refillables were a major market share, you know, back in 1971. 53% of the soft drink sales were in refillable bottles. 32, uh, 36% of the beer sales were in, in refillable bottles, such as this cute little stubby bottle here, which was a bottle that any brewer could use. They would simply wash off the label and then put their own label on it and, and um, you'd be able to use it. Uh, the law had a provision for this in it in that there was a they they thought there'd be an incentive to keep refillables by making it so that they only had to have a two cent refund value, uh, a two cent deposit, I should say, rather than a five cent deposit for the other bottles. And so that was put into our law. And actually, that that is still in our law that a refillable bottle only has to have a two cent refund value, whereas the other ones have to have ten cents now. But it turned out that didn't really work out like people thought in that the public really didn't care whether it was a five cent or two cent uh, refund value. They'd be getting that money back anyway. So um, and the, the beer companies found that if they put their beer in new, shiny, you know, flashy bottles, that they their sales would go up. And this led to slowly a demise of the two cent bottle over time. But the funny thing is that. Our distributors here in the Pacific Northwest, at least, still figured out that it made sense to, you know, when they bring these bottles back to wash and refill them. So this so-called one-way bottle, like the the tall Blitz Weinhardt bottle here with a screw top as opposed to a crown top, which makes it you know, more likely to break, they would bring those bottles back in and they would wash them and they would refill them. And that kept on going up until about the year 2000 or so, when uh, over a space of about three years, all of the major uh, breweries here in the Northwest were purchased by national companies and were sh they shut down the local brewing and moved that brewing out to other states, like down to California. And when that happened, it just made it so that refillables, you know, these new these other breweries that were purchasing it didn't have the washing equipment and so on, and would have to transfer bottles further. And so our refillable, you know, our refilling of the one-way bottles pretty much disappeared. Um, but there was major change in our legislation in 2007 that went into effect in 2009, which essentially created a de facto producer responsibility organization that wasn't in the law. And matter of fact, I don't know that people were even thinking about this in 2007, but this provision, which required stores to take back not only the brands they sell, but other brands made it so all the distributors figured it made sense to get together and come up with a unified system similar to maybe what Maine is is 
you know, requiring now in their legislation, but our distributors did it on their own. And almost all the distributors in the state are part of this Oregon Beverage Recycling Cooperative. And the cooperative has made it possible to have all sorts of new innovations that they've done. Um, as I said before, we didn't have any redemption centers. Well, they decided to put together redemption centers because they knew the public demanded it and they wanted to, to serve that need. So even though it costs them money, even though it's uh, it's an expense for them, um, they have put together extremely efficient systems that only cost on the order of like one and a half or two cents per container to return in order to bring these back. And they've developed what they call the green bag system, um, which I believe actually came out of Clink in, in Maine doing this sort of work first, where uh, people could simply uh, establish an account, fill up a bag with empty containers, and then just drop off the bag. They put their a sticker on it with their barcode, and the money would be uh, automatically put into the account. OBRC would count the containers, would give the, the, the 10 cent refund value, and put it into their account, which they could then use. Um, they've developed very efficient processing systems for handling the containers. But I think the thing most of interest to people here is they developed a refillable bottle. They have their own refillable bottle they created, and then they've been trying to sell this to various um, beverage companies. And so at the moment, there are 11 companies using this bottle. Uh, there are more than 100 different types of beverages that are put into these from these 11 companies. Um, and so you know, this is a program which they're trying to expand. But I will say that there have been some really strong barriers to that expansion here. And that is that our program works just in the state of Oregon. If those if you have a brewer who wants to send bottles out of state, they're not going to come back. So Portland, for instance, is right on the border of with Washington. And so anything sold up in Vancouver is not likely to come back. Or if you sell up in Seattle or whatever, you're not likely to see those back. Or if down to California, even though California has a uh, you know the current system down there, the there's just no way for those distributors to bring uh, for, for the uh, redemption centers really to sort those out and bring them back up here because they wouldn't, you know, that's it, that's not the way that the California system works. Um, and then the other big barrier, uh, and this is getting less important over time, is that when we had redemption, we, we had uh, reverse vending machines in front of most of the grocery stores in the state. Uh, those many of those machines would crush the containers for making more space. So they would flatten the plastic bottles and they flatten the aluminum cans and they would crush the glass. A refillable system doesn't work unless you get the bottles back and you need to get them back more than two or three times in order to make it uh, worthwhile. So um, so we just have those barriers that uh, that we need to figure out. And the way they'd be solved, I think, is through a national bottle bill. And producer responsibility uh, legislation is what we really need to, to move forward. Oh, thank you thank to you. everyone. Peter, thank you to everyone for those presentations. Uh, really insightful and inspiring. Um, everybody, please join me back on screen for the discussion. Uh, Peter, what you just said there was a great segue. Um, so we're going to go with... With Peter first, um, because Oregon's bottle bill program is sort of the original in the U.S. and a very favorite example of an organized reuse system being incorporated into a bottle bill. So from your perspective as a regulator, do you think the voluntary reuse program in Oregon is effective 
Or would you prefer to see an update to the legislation itself? For example, requirements. Yeah, again, the the issue we have is a, bo- a refillable system works only if you get those bottles back. And so trying to develop that when you have national brands out there who are, you know, they're producing these bottles in California or, you know, somewhere else, shipping them here to Oregon. Um, and then, you know, they don't have the washing systems back at their areas. So how is it that we get you know, the bottles back to them in the way that, you know, they can use? It's it's a, I do think that, uh, you know, national legislation would be extremely helpful in making that happen. And having, uh, again, our law with our, our responsibility organization, the Oregon Beverage Recycling Cooperative, although it acts like a producer responsibility organization, there's nothing in the law that requires it. So unlike, for instance, our EPR bill for packaging and printed paper and our mattress bill and our electronics bill and so on, where you have organizations that are required to submit plans to the state on how they're going to do managed materials that they do, there's no requirement for uh, the Oregon Beverage Recycling Cooperative to uh, submit plans to us and so on. Now, in spite of that, they've been very innovative in doing all these things to, to, you know, the fact that they created this refillable bottle program on their own is really good. But what I would want to do is try to put more emphasis into a national bottle bill. And, you know, if any state's looking at is, I think really the only way for individual states to pass a, a bottle bill now is through an EPR program rather than a, rather than like a California program or something like that, or, you know, putting the, the grocers, they're so far away from taking back empty containers, so many years since they've done that. That they will just absolutely rebel against it. You need you need the beverage industry to figure out how to make this work. Oh, that's a great answer, Peter. Thank you. That is so helpful, and we are in full agreement with you. Um, for Susan, um, Susan, you mentioned that there's now new funding allotted in California's program for reuse. Um, if it were up to you, what do you think is the most ideal or the best use of that funding? Yeah. So. Um... I'm hopeful that it will be used for um, washing equipment and other equipment. That that is that's absolutely the key to making any um, refillable system work. Um, but hand in hand with that is um, like if you have a a beer producer who's mainly producing in cans and doesn't even have a bottling line, then they're not going to be able to participate. So it may be that that even at the level of production, they need equipment to to fill their containers and glass bottles. There's also um, there was an investment made in Oregon to design the bottle. Uh, the the standard bottle that all of the the groups are sharing and the design of it is expensive. Uh, developing the mold is expensive to give to the glass bottle manufacturers, and then that initial um, production of stock of those common bottles. So there's a whole bunch of investment that's needed up front, and that's why you know twenty five million dollars is a is a huge pot of money, but that's the kind of money that's needed to really get a system started. That's great. And Susan, we may have missed this in your presentation, but could you uh, clarify is the new funding that's available, is that only for one budget cycle or is that going to be annual going forward? It's only for one budget cycle. Thank you. 
Mm-hmm. Um, for Sarah, very similar question. Um, now that uh, we have annual funding for reuse in Maine, how do you envision this funding being used and what would be your absolutely ideal outcome? Sure. Um, we don't have as much money as California, but we are much smaller too. Um, there's only 1.3 million people here in our state. Um, <clears throat> so it's funny, the <clears throat> we had originally advocated for having the commingling cooperative maintain the um, the half million to $1 million for them to spend because we really wanted the beverage industry themselves to be the ones making the investments and saying you can use this pool of the unclaimed fund for those investments. The legislative process is messy, and that turned into a grant program run by the state. I know that there's some interest in moving it back. So that's just to say that. Um, but similar to what uh, exactly what Susan said, it, having those shared resources and even you know having those discussions about what's the bottle, what's the the adhesive, all of that, buying those containers, um, and all of those those shared resources. So yeah, I don't want to repeat everything she said it beautifully. Oh, thank you, Sarah. So here's a question for everybody, um, for or anybody of the three of you. Even though a national bottle bill would allow the programs in each of your state to continue, based on your experience in each of your states, what do you think would be the best way to incorporate beverage container reuse at a national scale? Anyone want to take that? I've I've given a little bit of thought. Um, I, I think Peter talked about the transportation challenges and where the bottles go and how to get them back. Um, it would, it would require probably some strategic thinking, like a study by the beverage producers to figure out where physically, where that kind of a program would work the best. Um, and it, probably wouldn't be everywhere in the country if it was something like a um a 5% refillables mandate which is is what you know some of the the different draft pieces of legislation have called for is about a 5% refillables mandate to start um they could do that by concentrating it in certain areas and addressing the challenges that Peter talked about like if the bottles do move from Oregon to Washington you really need to have washing and distribution facilities in both places. Um, and so, you know, it, it would require a lot of really smart thinking about where would be the best places to locate this. And I bet it's going to end up being in um, centers that have really high um, population density. Oh, that's great. Thank you, Susan. Um, Peter or Sarah, anything to add to that? Oh, I think that's really a good summary. Um, and, you know, if we could figure out some way to get the bottles back from California and so on, that would work, too. But uh, but and, and we haven't talked about that between us yet. But that, you know, I, I know that OBRC has been trying to figure out sort of systems like that, how they can get things back from out of state. But it's really hard if, you know, Washington being right next door, Idaho being right next door, not having deposit systems, there really isn't a way to get them back. And I guess I'll just add that I um, I really hope that the the larger beverage manufacturers really take the initiative to, to get the sense. I feel like they have the national networks. They work with all the distributors. They they have all the things that that are needed to do to to get this done, and um, a lot of the power to do it. So I just hope that they they lead the way here. Uh, I want to make one one other small comment too that um, 
you know, we know that the beverage industry in the past has strongly opposed deposit legislation, but because our distributors got together and figured out how to make this work, that is not true locally. They support this legislation here. That's great. Thank you very much, everyone. So we have collected some excellent questions, uh, Q&A questions from our audience. And so we'll see how much of this we can fit into the next 15 minutes. But we've got um, two that are really excellent. We cannot avoid asking these. Um, this One of them is for Peter. Um, how does Oregon's new packaging EPR program interact with the existing bottle bill? And how does reuse factor into that? Well, that's a, a really good question. We had to exclude bottled beverage containers that are covered under the bottle bill from our new EPR bill. I mean, the argument that the industry made was, hey, we've got our own EPR system here. But that means, you know, and most of our containers go back through the bottle bill. Um, there are, you know, a small percentage that go back through curbside programs, but it's pretty small. I, I, I'm estimating on the order like five or 10 percent. Uh, most of those containers and we have a very high redemption rate, um, you know, in, in the, or I forget what the current number is, but uh, I think it's been around 85 percent recently. So. Um, so anyway, the. Uh, um, Really interesting thing, though, that the legislature did regarding wine, because wine is not covered under our bottle. They put a vision in the law saying that anything that if the wine basically says the wine industry, if they decide that they want to be under the bottle bill, they can lobby the legislature to put them there. And if they do it before 2025, July 1st of 2025, which is when our new EPR law for packaging printed paper goes into effect, then they will be covered under the bottle bill provisions rather than the EPR bill. And, you know, they, they're still on the fence as to what they want to do. Um, they uh, And wine bottles would be great for having in the bottle bill if you had a refillable system, because those are big, heavy bottles uh, that are easily washed and refilled. They easily could be used multiple times. Um, and I can remember even back in the 1980s when Seattle Recycling, I lived up in Seattle at the time, and Seattle Recycling established they, they bought a bottle washer and they established a program where they bought back wine bottles from the public and washed them. Now, it didn't work for a small recycler to do that. They had to give up the program after a few years. But if we're talking about a you know something being done on the scale of a whole state, uh, I'm sure we could have, you know, there's certain standardized wine bottles out there that could be used by many different wine uh, bottlers. Thank you, Peter. Uh, same question for Sarah and Susan. Um, what are you? What What about Maine and California? For the the how the bottle system work together? Yes. Um, and yes. how reuse so, factors in? Right. Gotcha. So um, we were steadfast in not wanting our bottle bill material to get put into the municipal system and put into the EPR system, even though that's what some beverage industry produce you know would, would like to see. If anything, I'd like to see any underperforming material types in the EPR system get moved to a deposit return system um, because that's how we get the, the better returns, obviously. Um, and I think here in Maine, I've been thinking a lot more about how uh, to to facilitate the um, the infrastructure for uh, the take back for reuse. And we have our network of redemption centers 
um, that are already there. People are already going there to return their beverage containers. And I think this would be a nice way to diversify those businesses if other reusables were returned there or for whatever other purpose. So I really would like to get them uh, more involved as we talk about this um, with the, the rulemaking for our EPR system. Um, and we're currently going through the rulemaking uh, for our EPR program. So time will tell how much um, we will be able to facilitate the reuse through, through that, but hopefully quite a bit. Thank you, Sarah. Any Anything up from California, Susan? Yes, um, it's, it's very similar to what uh, Peter said, only it played out in real life here in California. So there's a couple of things that are different about um, our California law. They have this in, in Oregon too, which is a recycled content requirement for glass. Uh, we have five glass bottle making facilities here in California, and they have a 30% recycled content requirement. So they have always been very keen to have a lot of clean glass coming back through the bottle bill system so that they can use that to make new bottles again. Um, that's the reason that some of the some of the provisions in SB 1013 were further um, incentive funding to help them uh, pay for transportation of glass and those kinds of things. What happened in um, 2022 was that it was very clear that our EPR for packaging program was poised to pass either as an initiative or as a piece of legislation. And at that moment, the wine producers and spirits producers were, were going to by default end up in the EPR for packaging program with the glass containers going through the EPR for packaging system and getting broken and not being as suitable for recycling. So they were the ones who were behind SB 1013. They were the ones who came forward and said, we want to be in the bottle bill. We want our bottles to go through that system so we can get them back and meet the recycled content requirements. So I could, I could see the decision-making going in a similar way in Oregon as well. That's great. Thank you to all three of you. Um, so for any of you, uh, any one of you would like to address this, uh, the audience is asking, we hear a lot from companies and brands that two big concerns with reuse are customer perceptions about cleanliness and consumer behavior in general. How much of these concerns do you see from the public in your programs? Anyone want to take that? I can take it from the standpoint of that. Again, we had refillable bottles, as Susan said. That you know they were the the main way of of doing beverages back um, you know eighty years ago and on. Um, and you know there were occasional problems that people would see there. And of course, things get blown out of proportion. You know, one bad example can really spread you know information misinformation out there. But um, you know, at this point, our program is so small. Um, you know, I, I really can't say how how big of an issue it's going to be. It's, people are just not as experienced, so the, imagine there will be some people who who have issues with that. But there are a lot of people who realize how good bottle bills are, you know, how good refillable systems are. I just want to make one little comment, by the way, because I'm going to hold up here. This is a report uh, from EPA from 1974 called uh, Resource and Environmental Profile Analysis of Nine Beverage Container Alternatives. In 1974, this was one of the first uh, reports on, um, on uh, uh, where you look at, uh, I'm blank on the term, 
but you look at the environmental impacts of producing different things, and it was so strong in favor of refillables that that influenced my views on refillables all the way along. And I think the reason why that's important here is that um, you know there is such an interest in climate change and environmental impacts at the moment that I'm hoping that that would override any of these sorts of concerns that people might have over uh, over cleanliness and so on. But the fact that you've got such good detection systems that can you know scan bottles, look for chips, look for things in them, and so on, should really be able to take care of that issue. To, to a major extent. Um, Sarah or Susan, from your point of view? Um, sure. I, you know, I mentioned in my presentation that this is an area that I think we need to do a bit more work on. And what I'm going to be focusing on in my work at NRCM is um, trying to quell these fears because I don't think they need to be there. And I, and I do think that, you know, we have a plastic bag ban here too. And then when COVID disrupted the implementation of that, and you heard the same old arguments too about not having reusable bags and not having, you know, people, it's just, you know, sensationalized stuff that's not necessarily warranted, if, especially if you're going and touching door handles and using stair rails and things in public buildings. Um, you know, it's comparably not a threat. Thank I'll you. just add that the um, that refillables are in such widespread use in so many parts of the world. I think um, the province of Ontario, Canada, I think it's something like 30% of their beer is sold in refillables. Um, the, the percentage numbers of refillables are in some of the reports that we provided on our resource page. There are some reports out there that that show how wide widespread it is. So it's, it's you know, when people are familiar with it, they're very popular. That's great to hear. Um, so... Uh, we do have a, one time for another question. Um, we've gotten a lot of questions from the audience about producers paying for infrastructure. So I want to circle back to this question of reuse infrastructure for beverage containers. What do you think is needed in your state or nationally? And what should this really look like? Is it better to do them for collection, washing, and redistribution that producers pay into? or allow this to develop more as a market-driven system. Does anyone want to take that? I'll, I'll take it from the standpoint of the reason why our law, I think, has been very successful is regardless of what requirements, that and an in, in, unintentional incentive was set up for all the beverage distributors to get together. And thus, we've never had the issue like Maine has where, you know, which is partially solved, where you had so many different sorts, you know, we instead they use artificial intelligence to scan the containers, count them, um, you know, put money in people's you know accounts and things like that. That makes it work work you know work very well. Uh, they could come up with a refillable bottle system because they were all working together to do this, and they um, you know. Even without mandates from the state to do these sorts of things, they came with on their own. If we had a system where they had to report to the state and give us plans, it, it could be even much stronger. And so, you know, that's if any state's looking at this, I would prefer going through the traditional producer responsibility type of legislation where you tell the end this is what we want to happen, you figure out how to make it happen. Sarah or Susan, a different different perspective? 
Um, a couple of things that I could add to that would be that um, we already know that the free market approach isn't providing the environmental outcomes that we're seeking. It's, it's not working in the United States. Um, the the legislation, you know, putting a deposit on beverage containers is what gets them returned. Um, there are additional uh, environmental there are additional legal things that we could do. We could take the approach of um, having a carbon footprint measurement of the entire system of beverage um, containers and, and delivery and everything and say, you know, here's your baseline and have have it um, have targets for reducing the carbon uh, footprint over time which gives producers the opportunity to do it through more recycling or the use of more refillables or whatever. It moves them in that direction. Um, another program that's operating right now uh, in the province of Ontario, they actually have an environmental levy on non-refillable beer containers and it's 10 cents. So that that is a financial incentive that encourages the use of refillables. That's great. Thank you, Susan. Anything from you, Sarah? I know, this is such a really super big question that it's hard to uh, to, to answer it. Um, but I do think in general that the um, that the producers need to provide the funding source for this stuff and not the taxpayers. But I, I um, and I'm also a very big believer in environmental policy and in rules that we need to set to make these things happen because voluntary initiatives are not enough, clearly. So I think it's gonna, it's not a simple answer. I think that there's a lot of different types of policies slash incentives, carrots, sticks, um, consumer demand, all of those things have to work in conjunction, but ultimately the, um, the funds need to come from the producers themselves. This is great. Uh, I just wanna take the opportunity to plug um, Upstream's uh, report called the new new reuse economy for the beverage sector. And we've linked to that in the chat. If anyone's um, interested in checking that out, it's very, very relevant. Uh, I'm so glad we brought up the concept of the carbon footprint um, as well as circularity and how um, it can be part of the mix when we're deciding our return, re return and refill systems. Um, Reverse logistics in big, sparse states can have a big impact on emissions. So uh, if any one of you, we only have time for, I think, maybe one, one perspective, but um, should refill targets take into account carbon too? What would any one of you say? Sure. The huge, as I point out, even from that 1974 report, mm -hmm. refillables have such you know high uh, environmental uh, benefits that uh, you know just having whatever way you do it, put anything that creates more refillables is going to reduce the uh, the carbon impact as long as those again as long as the bottles come back, then that's the key thing. You we need to have a system where the bottles come back like 15 times or so to really start you know, getting those benefits. So um, that's hard for an individual state to do, uh, not with the large quantity of the beverages that are sold because those beverages are coming in from out of state and you know, it's hard to get them back to where they belong. I love it. And, and that has really been uh, my professional experience too in calculating environmental impacts of reuse and refill. Um, any way you shake the data, uh, reuse and refill uh, expense 
emits just uh, astronomically uh, fewer carbon emissions. And I really feel like we, we don't talk about that quite enough. And I, I really hope that, um, you know, more folks can start to see how much refill and reuse um, can help us meet our climate goals. So um, with that, um, we are at time. Um, I'd like to thank each of our panelists again for joining us. For those of you who are interested in this topic, want to engage more on this effort to introduce and pass a national bottle bill that has reuse provisions, there's an exciting event coming up, and that is the Senate, Senate Environment and Public Works Subcommittee hearing next week at 10 o'clock a.m. on September 28th. And that is called Examining Solutions to Address Beverage Container Waste. And actually, our very own Susan Collins here will be one of the expert witnesses providing testimony, as well as Jules Bailey from the Oregon Beverage Recycling Cooperative that operates Oregon's Bottle Bill and its Voluntary Beverage Reuse Program. So please mark your calendars for that. Keep an eye on the Senate calendar for that hearing. The Senate EPW subcommittee is welcoming any written documents that outline thoughts or priorities related to national DRS, EPR, or and or recycled content mandate policy. So please consider submitting your comments urging that a national DRS um, incorporate reuse. And that's our show. If you like what you're hearing, help spread the word. Subscribe to the Indisposable Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Add a review, talk us up. Nobody spreads a message like you. The Indisposable Podcast is brought to you by Upstream, sparking innovative solutions to plastic pollution, envisioning a world without it, and empowering businesses, communities, and individuals to imagine and co-create this future with us. You can find resources mentioned on today's episode as well as learn more about Upstream's work at www.upstreamsolutions.org. Follow us on social and join the movement. There's a better way than throwaway.